Hi everyone, this is Esther Erickson von Allman from the Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service, and this is my second episode in a two-part series on housing inequality in Charlottesville. In my previous episode, I discussed the history of housing segregation, redlining, and urban renewal on both a national as well as local level. I also spoke with the Weldon Cooper Center demographer, Blake Rumley, to learn more about homeownership in Virginia and the demographic makeup of Charlottesville. In this episode, I want to shift our focus to more contemporary problems with housing inequality, as well as the affordable housing initiatives within Charlottesville. I will be speaking with Beth Kennan, a former employee at the Piedmont Housing Alliance, a Charlottesville nonprofit dedicated to providing affordable housing to local residents. Like I mentioned in my previous episode, one of the strategic goals of the Weldon Cooper Center is to foster strong public leadership to address local, regional, and statewide issues. The Cooper Center stresses the importance of community-centered dialogue, and so I want to discuss the issue of housing inequality in a way that incorporates data and survey feedback from Charlottesville residents themselves. So without further ado, let's get into it. As you probably already know, owning a home is a primary way for families to build wealth, secure their retirement, and pass on money to their children. Not only can homeownership help future wealth building, but prior research has also suggested that homeownership can have a positive influence on a young adult's educational attainment, civic participation, and health outcomes. Homeownership is a form of intergenerational wealth, or a type of collective wealth that families can use to support each other across lifetimes. Intergenerational wealth can also exacerbate existing income inequality and wealth concentration in the United States. A 2018 report by the Federal Reserve found that a person in the top 10% of the income distribution in the United States is about twice as likely to be the recipient of transferred wealth than someone from the bottom 50%. Overall, of all intergenerational wealth transfers in the United States, more than half go to individuals belonging in the top 10% of the wealth distribution, while only 8% of intergenerational transfers go to the bottom half of the wealth distribution. But of course, these inheritances do not strictly refer to property and homes. They can also refer to monetary transfers through wills, for example. So let's look more closely at how homeownership relates to wealth. The Urban Institute examined the impact of parental homeownership and wealth on the home buying prospects of their children between 1999 and 2015. The study found that having a homeowning parent increases a young adult's likelihood of being a homeowner by 7 to 8 percentage points. So why might this be the case? Well, there are a number of ways that having parents who own homes might increase your likelihood of owning a home. For example, you could obtain more information about the mortgage application process from your parents, and you might also have greater motivation to become a homeowner if you experience the benefits of homeownership growing up. The study also found a positive correlation between parental wealth and their children's likelihood of owning a home. Young adults are more likely to be homeowners if their parental wealth is above $200,000. This socioeconomic disparity also leads to a racial disparity. Keep in mind that more than 50% of white parents, but only 10% of black parents, hold more than $200,000 of wealth. Educational attainment is also correlated with homeownership. The homeownership rate of people with professional degrees, such as medical and law school graduates, 
is approximately 76%. For people with bachelor's degrees, it's about 67.3%. And the lowest homeownership rate is for those without high school diplomas at around 40.5%. So your likelihood of purchasing a home as an adult is caught in a web of interrelated factors, including family wealth, whether or not your parents owned a home, and your educational attainment. And so, where there are inequalities within these different categories, you will be unsurprised to find disparities in homeownership rates as well. We see this disparity on a smaller scale in Charlottesville. 2018 U.S. Census Bureau data found that in Charlottesville, black homeownership rates are lower than white homeownership rates, even when controlling for income. For example, within the category of those making between $25,000 to $50,000 a year, white homeownership is 53%, while black homeownership is 26%. For those making between dollars dollars and $70,000 a year, white homeownership is 57%, while black homeownership is 34%. Although the percentage difference varies, white homeownership is consistently higher than black homeownership across all income groups in Charlottesville. Additionally, the same data set found that in Charlottesville, homes in majority black neighborhoods are valued far less in comparison to homes in majority white neighborhoods, despite these neighborhoods having nearly identical median incomes. The median home value in a majority black neighborhood in Charlottesville is $193,920, while the median home value in a majority white neighborhood is $345,961. So people owning property in majority black neighborhoods in Charlottesville do not extract the same amount of wealth from homeownership as those living in majority white neighborhoods. In my previous episode, I spoke with the Weldon Cooper Center demographer, Blake Rumley, who discussed some of the observations made by another Weldon Cooper Center demographer, Hamilton Lombard, from an article titled Inside the Income Gap for Some Black Virginians. Lombard explains that the homeownership rate was lower for Black Virginians in 2018 than in 2000 and lower in 2000 than in 1980. Overall, since the Great Recession, homeownership rates in Virginia have declined steadily between 2008 and 2013 and bottomed out in the first quarter of 2016. During the recession, house prices fell more than 30% nationally, wiping out over $8 trillion in home equity. This housing market crash led to a foreclosure crisis during which 4 million Americans lost their homes. Important to note is that this crisis disproportionately impacted low-income Black Americans. And I want to briefly discuss how and why. In my previous episode, I talked about redlining, a practice where companies refused to insure or sell properties to individuals who were deemed a financial risk. However, during the housing boom, Predatory lenders engaged in a practice known as reverse redlining, specifically targeting individuals with low credit scores because their low credit made them more susceptible to buy unsuitable loan products. As a result, according to the Center for Responsible Lending, black borrowers were 76% more likely than white borrowers to lose their homes as a result of the foreclosure crisis. And the effects of this crisis linger today, having caused permanent damage to people's credit According to the National Association of Realtors, less than a third of families who lost homes to foreclosure in the past decade will ever return to home ownership. The percentage of households that are owner-occupied as opposed to rented has fallen five percentage points since before the crisis, from 69 to 64 percent. 
In other words, there are 7.3 million more households renting today than there were a decade ago. In Charlottesville, while white homeownership has actually increased by 13% between 2010 and 2018, black homeownership has decreased by 12% in the same time period. Troubling is that these types of disparities in homeownership can have dramatic effects on the racial wealth gap in the United States. For example, in 2015, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston published a groundbreaking report which calculated the median net worth of households in Boston. Net worth is the number you get from subtracting debts from assets. Assets include numbers like your personal savings, investments, and any property you own like a house or a car. Debts include credit card balances, student loans, medical debt, and mortgages. In Boston, white households have a median net worth of $247,500. In stark contrast, non-immigrant black households have a net worth of $8. The report cites drastically different homeownership rates between white and black households as a primary reason behind these very different median net worths. Close to 80% of white families own a home, while only one-third of U.S. black families, less than one-fifth of Dominicans and Puerto Ricans, and only half of black Caribbean households are homeowners. We also see disparities in homeownership between older and younger generations. The decrease in homeownership after the Great Recession was most pronounced for young people. Whereas 45% of household heads ages 24 to 32 in 2005 owned their own home, just 36% did in 2014, a nine percentage point drop. Home prices nationwide have soared by more than 50% since being at a historic low during the recession. In 2018, home affordability reached a 10-year low. According to one 2019 home affordability report, the average income earner would need to work for 14 years before having the savings to make a 20% down payment on a median-priced home. In an expensive city like Los Angeles, the average income earner needs to work for 43 years to make the same type of down payment. On top of this, younger generations are facing mounting college debt like never before. In a 2019 report, the Federal Reserve calculated that student loan debt accounts for approximately 20% of the decline in homeownership among young adults. They also calculated that every $1,000 increase in student loan debt causes a 1 to 2 percentage point decrease in homeownership rates. As a result, the homeownership rate among millennials is at roughly 35%, lower than any other generation of young adults in the last 50 years. A 2020 Charlottesville Community Survey asked residents which housing issues will be most critical for the Charlottesville Affordable Housing Plan to address. Racial equity and rental affordability were the top two issues identified by respondents as most critical, with 79.5% of respondents characterizing racial equity as most critical and 73.5% characterizing rental affordability as most critical. 49% labeled homeownership as most critical. However, the survey actually elaborated on these results by providing a breakdown of the responses. While only 49% of respondents overall labeled homeownership as the most critical issue, 76% of Black and Latinx respondents and 63% of renters characterized homeownership as the most critical issue. The fact that racial equity and rental affordability ranked among the top two is not surprising. 
As I talked about in my previous episode, Charlottesville has a history of racist housing policy, and there continue to be racial disparities in housing today. Additionally, rental affordability is a valid concern for residents, given that Charlottesville is currently experiencing an affordable housing crisis. Racial equity and rental affordability are actually intertwined here in Charlottesville. While overall 57% of the Charlottesville population rents their housing, 76% of all black residents are renters, making them uniquely vulnerable to increases in rent prices. Affordable housing, as defined by the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, is a dwelling that a household can obtain for 30% or less of its income. In Charlottesville, the average percentage of income spent on housing is roughly 26%. At first glance, this indicates that Charlottesville housing is on average pretty affordable. However, when you take transportation into consideration, this percentage jumps to 45%. In Charlottesville, out of almost 18,000 households, there are approximately 2,300 that spend over 54% of their total household income on housing and transportation costs. In Albemarle County, the average household spends 54% of their income on housing and transportation, 23% of their income going to transportation alone. As calculated by the Charlottesville Low Income Housing Coalition, to afford the basic necessities of life, food, shelter, clothing, and utilities in Charlottesville, an average family of one parent and two children needs to earn $45,184 annually. But if you are a full-time worker making minimum wage in Charlottesville, your annual income will be just $15,080. The average rent here in Charlottesville costs $15,900 a year. So minimum wage doesn't even cover your average housing costs. Charlottesville housing is unattainable for minimum wage workers with multiple children. As a result, between 2010 and 2018, approximately 1,500 low-income residents moved out of Charlottesville. Affordable housing has become a top priority for the Charlottesville City Council, and there are a number of organizations that tackle the issue. The Piedmont Housing Alliance is a nonprofit that provides affordable housing and housing vouchers to low-income Charlottesville residents. In my last episode, I talked about the destruction of Garrett Square, a historically black neighborhood that was bulldozed as part of an urban renewal project. Well, in 2002, the Piedmont Housing Alliance and the National Housing Trust purchased the land and renovated the property to create what is now known as Friendship Court, an affordable housing complex that houses 150 families. I spoke to Beth Kennan, a former employee at the Piedmont Housing Alliance, who oversaw the redevelopment of Friendship Court, to learn more about affordable housing in Charlottesville. All right. So hi, Beth. Thank you for joining me. I'm excited to be speaking with you today. I thought we could just start off by asking you, you know, where are you from originally? And you could talk about what inspired you to begin working with, you know, affordable housing initiatives in Charlottesville. Okay. My name is Beth Kennan, and I grew up here in Charlottesville. I'm a product of Albemarle County Public Schools, and I went to college in Roanoke, and I went to graduate school in D.C., where I lived and was first really introduced to affordable housing. 
I would say that my real first introduction was I think my dad, on reflection, took me to help out with the Habitat House here in Charlottesville when that was getting going. So that was my first introduction into affordable housing. So I was probably a kid about that time, and he took me along. And then as I lived in the D.C. area, I um, became interested through my work in just real estate, which was typically commercial office type of work in what the real fabric of the the D.C. community was, the people that are there when it's not, regardless of politics, they're there all the time. Um, This is their, that's their home. That's where they raise their families. So I got involved through one of my um, employers with a program that went and did light and modest rehabs to homes for low and moderate income families. And so I did the previewing. I went and talked to the families and learned what they needed, how long they'd lived in their house, sort of their story. And that gave a real introduction to what the cost of maintaining a house is. And so I I did that and um, then continued to see the revitalization efforts in the district. And after a short time in Richmond, where I did volunteer work um, that exposed me to the public housing sector in Richmond, I had an opportunity to come back to Charlottesville community I care very deeply about, and work for an affordable uh, housing developer and operator in this community. So that's what brought me back to it. I think it was the realization that in today's world, we are all very separated, and technology increases that separation. COVID adds a whole other layer to it, but just naturally, we tend to be separated from our neighbors of all backgrounds, so we don't get a chance to know them and know their stories. And I think that That's what interested me in affordable housing. And when you come from a high cost area like Charlottesville and Albemarle County, affordable housing is a true challenge for many families because you also have to have the jobs that support those high incomes and those high rents. And and that's hard. That's a real challenge. For those of us who are not familiar with Piedmont Housing Alliance, could you tell us a bit more about what they do and who they serve? Okay. Now, I, I, I no longer work for Piedmont Housing Alliance, but I did work there for four years. The Piedmont Housing Alliance is an affordable housing developer, property manager, financial advisor. They serve Planning District 10, which is Charlottesville and Albemarle County and the surrounding counties immediate to it. So they do a lot to provide housing opportunity and working with people where they're at to provide the best opportunity for housing that they can. I know that you worked on a project called Friendship Court. Could you tell us a bit about that, what it is when it was constructed, and the work you did related to its redevelopment? Okay. I worked on that large development in downtown Charlottesville for about four years. I worked on the planning and um, phase development approach that it has taken. It is currently about 150 homes built in the late 70s. And like many things I say to my colleagues, a lot of things from the late 70s start to show their cracks and their wear and tear. And so it's an opportunity uh, to, to redevelop. And that site is unique in that it provides that opportunity to reconnect with the surrounding area uh, in downtown Charlottesville. The process and um I was not the first to start it. I was certainly there for a big chunk of the planning and um, development of plans and construction drawings for for 
a good bit of time, um, involves very heavily residents and the residents use an approach. They have an advisory committee that really draws out the most important and critical issues because it comes from their voice, not the voice of myself or anyone else. The intent is that their voice is heard and that the designs are reflective of the residents that live there. And I often don't say what community it is. I say, you know, it's a large community because people associate names of communities with certain stigmas. That's not what we want to do. We want to build relationships with individuals in communities. So that, that is my take. It was, it's a very involved process. It's a multi-phase development. It will be a catalyst for a lot of great change in the city of Charlottesville. But at the most important part is that the residents stay the, the main focus and the guiding light for that development and that their voice is always heard. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about the, the clientele that you worked with. Were they families were they looking for temporary housing solutions or was affordable housing more of a stepping stone to enter the real housing market in Charlottesville? So I think one of the things that Piedmont Housing does a great job with and has historically has a fabulous track record with is their housing counseling program. And that would be an area for you to explore and talk with further that might explain some of the stepping stones and barriers to entry in a more technical way about about that piece. What I would say is that as a real estate development manager, and my background is in real estate development, and has been a a community center manager for the last year I was there, um, I worked with seniors at some properties. I worked with um, families at others. And I would say that all of them were people that I I was very fortunate to get to talk to and get to know. You know, people say affordable housing and people that live in affordable housing look like X or Y. They they give very general descriptions. But to really know, you have to, to really know what that means. You have to know people on an individual level and develop relationships with them. That's kind of my approach to affordable housing is really knowing and working your hardest to develop relationships that are sincere and heartfelt, and that you realize that you don't know other people's communities. You can read about it, and certainly that's an option, that's important data and background to have, but you really have to listen and then learn about the communities, because we're all unique. We all have our issues. It crosses every level, every social, economic, it crosses all of those levels and barriers, but you have to learn how to listen, and don't assume that you know what's right for somebody else, because you've never walked in their shoes. The Charlottesville City Council has drafted a new comprehensive affordable housing plan that will begin to be implemented this year. The plan promises to spend $10 million on affordable housing annually in a 10-year plan and aggressively target this funding towards low-income households. $100 million in investment over 10 years is expected to sustain roughly 4,100 affordable housing units. The plan also creates a mandatory inclusionary zoning policy. Inclusionary zoning is a type of planning ordinance that requires a certain amount of affordable housing be included in new construction projects. Other important aspects of this plan include advocating for legislation that will enable rent control and the establishment of a permanent eviction prevention fund that will provide emergency rent assistance to residents in need. 
The plan also calls for a change to the city's zoning policies to allow for soft density in single-family neighborhoods. Soft density refers to small, multi-unit housing, such as townhouses, duplexes, and triplexes. Soft density zoning increases the supply of housing in single-family neighborhoods and lowers the cost of entry into these neighborhoods that have traditionally functioned to exclude minority groups. Overall, this plan has some ambitious goals, and I will be interested to follow its progress as time passes. You can learn more about the plan and read the draft on the Seville Plans Together website. In this episode, I've discussed the various factors that affect homeownership on both a national as well as local level. I spoke about housing costs in Charlottesville, and we listened to Beth Kennan share about her work at Piedmont Housing Alliance. Ms. Kennan stressed the importance of listening to the feedback of Charlottesville locals and respecting the individual perspectives of community members. And for those who are interested in public service, learning about the historical as well as present-day problems with housing inequality is paramount in order to truly understand the challenges that many Americans in Charlottesville and elsewhere face when it comes to affordable housing. I hope you found this podcast helpful in your understanding of housing inequality in Charlottesville. This is Esther erickson Monalman from the Walden Cooper Center for Public Service. Thank you for tuning in. Bye, folks. Thank you.